Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. All right, so Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to finish off that chapter together in our uh, our time uh, together here. Shorter verses than we've had in the last couple of weeks, but good ones. Hebrews 7, verse 26 through 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, First for his own sin and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Father John Neardas, let us see the completeness of Christ the necessity of Christ, the joy and blessing of Christ. I pray that our hearts would be compelled to live through him and not navigate around him. I pray that in your name. Amen. I had a, uh, or I've had a, I guess another confession moment. Uh, I've had an ongoing cyclical struggle for probably the last eight or nine years. You're wondering what I'm about to say. It's a perpetual game of hide and seek with about 10 pounds. Remember that story? I don't like to use the language that I lost weight or gained weight much anymore because it doesn't seem proper. Um, I don't know if it's honest to say if I've, I've lost weight anymore, knowing that full well that there's a decent chance in the winter it's going to find me. And, and also for the same reason, I don't know if I should have to say I gained weight either because, I mean, in the summer, I'll probably ride my bike a little bit and, and I'll hide again. Hence my language of hide and go seek. Sometimes I successfully hide from 10 pounds. And in other times when I'm enjoying the God-given beautiful blessing of tacos a lot, it'll find me, right? And I just shrug my arms like, you got me. We'll play again later. Um, though I play this reoccurring game with 10 pounds uh, and my weight will, will change. It'll, it'll fluctuate. Right, there's, a, there's a delta point, like 20, 20 pounds either way can kind of go, or well, depending on how you look at it. Um, though I play this game where my weight will change, here, here's what doesn't change. My clothing, specifically my jeans. Right, I don't have hiding jeans that are a little smaller and form-fitting, uh, and I don't have finding jeans that are looser that I call my stretchy pants. I don't have those, Right? I have the same size jeans for when I'm up 10 pounds and the same size jeans for when I'm uh, down 10 pounds. This means that uh, my jeans uh, and the fit that they have on me change depending on where I'm at in the game, right? It's going to vacillate. When I'm up 10 pounds, uh, they're going to feel a little bit tighter, a little bit less comfortable, a little less room to run and be athletic in activities and stuff like that, especially if they're jeans fresh out of the wash, right? You feel the pain? And then if they're fresh jeans that have just been kind of dried and I'm in that up 10 pounds, then I got to play the stretch game, 
right? You've done this? You think, you think you're the only one who does this? You put on the fresh jeans, like I find a doorway and I squat and I kind of shimmy around and I'm moving, trying to get a little space out of them. But there's a delicate balance there because if you go too far, you're going to blow the rear out or lose a button. So you got to get space without destroying things. And that, that's the game. You guys know the game. The laugh knows. The awkward laugh knows. I thought I was the only one who did it. You're not. And when I'm down, down 10 pounds, I have to find a belt or there's a decent chance you're going to see what color my boxers are if I don't just completely lose my pants out in, in public, right? What we need to realize, um, or, or I guess I, what I should say is uh, either way, when my pants are a little bit loose or a little bit tight, uh, I can still look at Allie and, and claim, babe, my jeans still fit. That term fit. <laughs> it's a loose wording of fit. They may not be an exact fit. They may not be a perfect fit. They may not even be a, a great fit, but they still fit-ish, kind of, maybe, a little bit. Right? I, I can buckle them, might breathe a little different, but they can be buckled. What we need to realize, and why I kind of went through that goofiness, is that it kind of fits mentality is absolutely not at all what they're talking about in this text. What the author had in mind when he declares in the opening of the text today that it was fitting, appropriate, that we should have such a high priest. He's in no way saying that Jesus can kind of work fit. Like you can kind of like finagle it to where it works okay for you. There's no sense that the author is saying that Jesus is this rough fitting, uh, loose tolerance, that will do kind of fit for us. We'll be able to kind of like, we'll be able to make it work. Jesus is not the square peg that you hammer into the round hole of your heart until it works. It's not the way it goes. He isn't the wrong tool for the job. Have you ever used the wrong tool for a job? What happens? You probably curse and have to repent and you break things. Jesus is not the wrong tool for the job of humanity. He isn't the, the duct tape, bush fixed generic solution to humanity's problem. Jesus is indeed fitting. Moreover, he is the perfect fit, the only fit the only solution for the problem that we have, he perfectly fits. I wonder how those words land on you this morning. Jesus is the only fit. Right in here in the safe context of your, your church family, I wonder if you kind of uh, agree with those and, and you'll be able to nod like, yep, mm-hmm, yep. Let me press further. I, I wonder if you ask that around an unbeliever. Maybe your neighbor, your coworker, somebody that you hobby with who... who who doesn't love Jesus very much or at all. I wonder if you would, in the situation where if they asked you, hey, do you personally believe that stuff? Do you, are you one of those? Do you personally believe that Jesus is the only fit? Come on, the only solution? Would you still say yes and be okay with it? Or would a public declaration of that be a little bit too much for you here at this point? And the reason I ask that is because we must be okay with uh, such a deep navigation of this that, that there's no pause in any facet of our life. Culture in large will not be okay with the assertion that Jesus is the only fit. And yet we need to be unwavering in our belief of it. We need to have no doubts that Jesus is the fitting one for us and all. Again, not, not so that we can be brash and yell at people and be like, you're wrong, Jesus is the only fit. No, no, that's not, that's not what we're doing. But we have to have such an unyielding belief in it 
that no matter where the circle is, whether we're alone with our thoughts or we're out in public, where we know this, believe this, and assert this in such a way that we can hold on to the peace that is meant to come with it. If you waver, you'll lose the peace that is meant to be had. Now, we want to be wise about the anchored belief that comes in holding to the understanding that Jesus is the only fit. An anchored belief doesn't have to be a militant one. Right? We want our resolution to be what we call closed-fisted, and closed-fisted just means I'm going to hold this so tightly that you're not going to peel my fingers back and be able to take it. This will not change. You don't need to beat people with the same closed fist. Just nobody can take it from you. We will not be able to let go of the conviction that Jesus is the only fit, no matter how loudly the world declares to us that we are wrong, cruel, ignorant, idiotic, insensitive, any of the other words that you want to use. But the question maybe we should wrestle with a little bit is why is the exclusivity of Christ so hated? Why does the world find Jesus to be, the, the, the idea of Jesus being the fitting one so deplorable and so unacceptable? There's likely layers to uh, the, the reasonings, but, but some will condemn or not enjoy or hold on to the reality that Jesus is the only fitting one because of what they think of as a form of tolerance. To accept Jesus as the fitting one, the only fitting one, is to simultaneously reject any possibility that anything else would, would fit. To say Jesus is the way to redemption, heaven, enlightenment, whatever they want to kind of put at the end of the, the path, to say that would be to simultaneously say that Buddhists and, and Mormons and Hindus and Muslims are all wrong. It would be to say that moralists and moral relativists are wrong. So some push away the claims that Jesus is the only fitting one, not necessarily because they don't see merit in it, but they don't want to hurt other people's feelings. They have a hard time with the idea of this could offend someone, uh, so they kind of distance themselves a little bit out of the idea of offense. Now, some look at the multitude of claims in the world uh, about what people need, and they insist, okay, there's so many religions and so many claims of enlightenment and so many claims of paths, and all of you guys all think that you're the right one, and so they back up and, and go, you all think that you're right, but I think all of you are crazy. This would be the atheistic or maybe the agnostic mindset in the culture that all religion is just a coping mechanism. Weak people do it to deal with their strife and their hard situations. It's not helpful. It just pushes us back into some archaic mentality. These people aren't worried about offending. They just think it's dumb. Like all of you argue, and since there's a plethora of options out there, everyone's just a fool. And then the third category of rejection is more of a personal rejection to the statement. Some reject the exclusive claims of Christ fitting or being the way of redemption because they personally do not want to yield to it themselves. They'll refuse to look at the landscape of culture or the position of their own heart and admit that there is a problem or if they concede that there is a problem because you can't really look at culture right now and be like, we're killing it. If they admit that there is a problem... They will not for a moment believe that Jesus is the fix for it. I will not use him to fix it. No. They will believe that they can do it on their own or some other way or some other path, but they will not concede or submit to the Christ who is the fitting one. There are likely some other reasons for rejecting Jesus being the only way, uh, but, but these seem to be some of the more prevalent ones that at least I see or experience. And, and we want to recognize some of the defeater be beliefs in them for this reason, not so we can bust people up, because we want to make sure that they slowly don't work themselves into our own heart. 
We must keep to the statement of Jesus himself. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, he is indeed the fitting one. Next question, fitting for what? What are you saying he's fitting for? For only sin or for more than just sin? What what is he the, the perfect fit for? What the author is leading us to see is that Jesus is fitting for all of it. Fitting for our sin. Fitting for our desires. Do you believe that? Fitting for our anger, for our longings. He's the fitting one to appease our conscience that terrorizes us. He's the fitting one to quiet your soul in the noise. He's the fitting one to calm a restless heart. He's the fitting one to draw us to the throne of God to experience power and freedom. He's the fitting one to find fulfillment, to give peace. He's the fitting one to wash over us in joy, to give us meaning. He's the fitting one to help you put your face into the wind and handle the temptation and and the craziness and the hardships that you'll see in the world. Jesus isn't just the one who gets you out of trouble. He's the one in him and through whom and by whom we are meant to find fulfillment. He's the source of it all. St. Patrick said this, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left. Christ when I lay down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in the eye of that that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. This prayer resonates. Because we can have moments that we kind of forget that Jesus isn't just the one that we need to get past our old self with. Christ uh, wasn't the God that we kind of tag in like, like, a, like the wrestling match where we kind of tag in and he comes in and jumps off the top rope and defeats our sin and then we tag back out and then, and then we kind of handle the rest of the thing. There's a simultaneous transfer of life when we are saved. This is why the Bible refers to salvation most often as union with Christ. Look through it. They're, they, 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 they're not going to call it just salvation all the time. They're going to call it union with Christ because we are dead to our old sin when we are in him, but we are alive in him. Union, united. Yes, there's a sin element to that. But there's a living element to that as well. Our source of life is him. That's why Jesus went to the, the, the woman in the, in the, by the well in the New Testament Right? I'm the water that doesn't run dry. I'm the one that if you take a drink of me, you'll never thirst. And she's kind of looking down and be like, I don't know what you're saying, man. He's like, yeah, you got like nine husbands, right? You're still, they're still, you're still thirsting, aren't you? Yeah. That's because I'm the one who's supposed to do that. He is pointing to the way that Life coming to life and being fulfilled in life comes through him. He is not the barrier to your happiness. He's the key to it. With him, you will find life. He is the key, the fitting one, the fitting one to deliver you. In him is where you find what your soul longs for and needs. And without him, you'll wither away and look at other places and become bitter and cynical and probably angry. 
You understand the path of idolatry, the biggest thing that the enemy does to us is convinces us to look elsewhere for the thing that can't give us what we want when Jesus stands there and goes, I've got it here for free. Actually, it wasn't free. I paid my blood. We go somewhere else and can't get it, and he's going, but I, I've got it. You look deeper. The, the call from Christ was never just to be a professing Christian. In Matthew 28, the last words before he ascended to the right hand of the Father had to do with going and making disciples of all nations, not going and making redemption cell members or going and making converts. It's go and make disciples of all nations. To be a disciple is a learning posture. A disciple is one who in their life follows Jesus, not just metaphorically, uh, but, but, but uh, actually they follow him. And part of this following is they see and they learn that going to Jesus for their needs is the key to everything in life. This is part of discipleship. It's part of being a learner is learning that Jesus fits. That too, yes. And this, yes. Peel back the onion layer of the heart. He fits for that, yes. My daddy issues, yes. My anger issues, yes. He is the one that meets everything that your soul longs for. Each day as a follower then becomes a path of making a decision in the morning where you go to him for what you need or not. As long as today is called today, we go to Jesus for what our souls yearn for. Several of us were praying and going to the Lord this week and Harrison sent me a text from Joel 2 was on his mind and it fit perfectly as I thought through this. Joel 2, 12 through 13. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with half of your heart. Probably not, right? Return to me with all of your heart, fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. What's going on here? There's this people that are giving half the heart. I'll give you my actions. I don't think that you can, I don't think that you're fit for this part. And Joel's a repeated theme uh, throughout scripture, and in this section in Joel's a repeated theme in our own lives. People will go to God, and then they won't. And they'll live with divided hearts, going to God for some things and then going to him later only with their words. And keeping their hearts far. I'll give you this, but I, I don't think you, can, you can't fix this. I'll deal with that. I wonder if that's where you find yourself even this morning. Did your mouth say the words? Did they fall out of your lips as we sing these words this morning? And did they fall out as a part of a routine that your heart wasn't even connected to? Or you don't even engage with the truth and the reality of what's inside of them. See, the call on Joel is a serious one, even now, right now. Return to the Lord with all of your heart. What are you holding back? What do you think he won't fix? What do you think he won't deal with? What do you think he won't satisfy? Return with all of it. Even my mess, even your mess, he'll take care of it. Don't give him your routines Keep your heart far from him, child of God. Not just because he's going to get angry if you don't, because your heart will begin to wither if you begin to look in poor places for the thing that Jesus is meant to give you. He is fit, the key, the source of what you need. The question just becomes, just will you receive it?
We make this so much harder than it needs to be. And him is all that we need. So we begin to answer every question. Where will you go today for where? Where will you go today to meet your needs? Where will you search? Again, the author is saying, go to the perfect high priest who is the exact fit, the perfect fit for our needs. How do we know that Jesus is indeed the exact fit? I mean, that's a lofty thing to say. He fits and he fits for everything. The cynic in me goes, we'll prove it. The text says, well, we know because he's holy, innocent, and unstained. Separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He isn't a priest who has to deal with his own weakness and then with the leftover margin deal with yours. He is perfectly suitable and appropriate and fitting for you. The author's painting this picture of the full goodness and godliness of Christ. Look at the elements together. He's a fitting one because he is holy. The, the term for holy in the, in, in the New Testament is, is hoisios, and it means to be morally pure. It's the opposite of becoming uh, wicked or uh, irreverent or sinful. Unfortunately, we've kind of lost the sense when we convey the word holy in our modern culture. Right? We say holy cow, holy moly. Holy expletive, right? Oh, that's how we kind of throw around the holy thing anymore or else maybe we'll, we'll, we'll kind of tag people with the name. That person's holier than thou and that's a put down, right? They're stuffy and rigid. They're a fun hater. I don't think they ever smiled, right? And yet this holy word is what's attributed to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who is able to withstand the full barrage of temptation, He faced the entire gamut of what the world had to offer sin-wise. We get into these weird twisted spots where we're like, man, my day is just so much harder than my grandparents. No, it's not. The same core things are all there. He went through it all, including the appeals to seduction. The moment where a quick lie could have probably saved him a hard conversation. Pride. Everything bid him to abandon God. And yet he held fast. Holiness isn't a term of stuffy suffocation. It's a term of power. He's holy. Nothing knocked him down. Nothing made him weak. Nothing made him fall. He is holy. He's fitting because he's innocent. Jesus is without guilt. He wasn't, be, he wasn't uh, immune from being accused of sin and evil. Look at the, the Pharisees. They're constantly trying to pin these accusations and paint him as this evil man, and yet the reality is they had no grounds for it. They're lying the entire time, whether it be by the law or his heart. He was without blame. There's nothing that could be hung on him. He's fitting because he's unstained. The term here for unstained means uh, is a reference to, to ceremonial purity. This is not a word that we're going to use in our normal culture in, in any way because it had to do a lot with their Levitical laws and, and their, their, the Levitical priesthood. There was a laundry list of things that was required to be a high priest. Like it's the highest revered position of their time in kind of the faith world. And so there, there was this laundry list of things and you could have no blemishes on this list. And if you had any of the blemishes or any of the weaknesses or any of these things, you would be disqualified. Such blemishes being bald or balding. Some of you like, that hurts. Shaving the corner of your beards. You're going to have that like long curly cue thing. 
being lame in any way, any issue with vision, back issues, much, 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 much more. There's a laundry list of things, and they're all disqualifications for what they call ceremonial purity, their stains. Now, this is not meant to teach us that if you have any type of of physical malady or imperfection, that you are broken and unqualified for the love of God or the mercy of God. What God was doing in the Old Testament is he's showing us these physical uh, blemishes or these physical limitations are teaching us a spiritual lesson, namely the access to God, to the presence of God required absolute and utter perfection. It's to show us you just can't willy-nilly go in. Anybody can't go. It's to preach the beauty of what the ultimate high priest actually would be. You would not be able to draw near without some perfection going in. In the case of Jesus, he was morally, physically, and spiritually unstained. He had no blemish on his record. He was never marred. There's not a world of perverted thoughts in his head. Not marred by fits of anger. Rejecting God's rules when no one's looking. He never gave in to violating any part of God's law, ever. Okay, well, why exactly is that relevant and important to us in believing that he's the fitting one? Well, because if Jesus were unholy, and guilty and stained by sin, it would mean that Jesus was prone to wonder. Remember, you're relying on him as your high priest to be your advocate. It means that Jesus is given to impatience. He could lash out on you. It would mean that he's given to selfishness and self-gratification and that Jesus would be prone to wonder and given to to, uh, irrational actions and and, and even reactive annoyance. If Jesus were guilty and unholy and stained, he'd be inconsistent in his love and kindness like we are. Tending to make maybe some decisions depending on the mood he was in on the day driven by all the vices and forms of power of the world, flighty with commitments and motivated by self-protection and self-interest. Is that the type of man or savior you want to hang your hopes on, though? Is that the type of man that you want to anchor your supreme confidence in? Is that the sort of priest that you want to depend on to intercede for you? Is that the sort of friend that you want to entrust your life to and your eternity to? Of course not. And that's the point. Jesus isn't any of those things. He's not questionable. He's fitting. He's fitting because he's separated from sinners. This is more of a summation of of some of the other things, right? It's not necessarily a new attribute. Christ, because he's holy. Christ, because he's innocent. Christ, because he's unstained, stands different. He stands not like the other Old Testament priests. He's separate for them. Christ is what no representative has ever been able to be where all other humans can let us down. Jesus stands separated from all of them. 
then he's fitting because he's exalted above the heavens. Christ is now ascended to the right hand of the Father. There is no temptation to withstand. Like we're, we're, we're kind of still in the battle, right? You got you to watch out all moments, trying to defend yourself from temptation and sin. Christ is, is outside next to the Father. There's no new hiccup, right? You don't have to worry of like, hey man, maybe later he's going to fall on his face. It's done. He will not fall. His work is done. His temptation is finished, and he's now interceding on the right hand of the Father for every believer. Verse 27 said, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Every previous priest had to go in and make first a sacrifice for themselves, right? They are not innocent. So they had to walk in first to, 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 to represent them own, them, their own selves and then to, to cover the other people. Okay, I got I to take care of me. Let me get this sacrifice done. Okay, one second. All right, okay. Now that's taken care of. Okay, now, now I'll kind of take care of them. This is the process. Every time, every day, every moment, me first, then you. Here's the picture, though. Imagine seeing a priest walking towards the altar in the inner parts of the temple. There's a bucket of, of blood from the, the goat just outside. He's carrying it in. It's not his blood. He felt nothing. He probably, maybe he didn't even kill the animal. He just took the blood. And he carried this blood of something separate from himself. And he walked in and he used the, the blood and he sprinkled it for himself and then for you. But Jesus is the fitting one who ended it all because Christ walks in with no bucket in his hand. There's no turtle dove under his arm. He's not leading a goat to the slaughter. He was the one led to the slaughter. The blood that he would use coursed through his own veins. Christ didn't shed first a sacrifice for his own sin because he didn't have to. There was none. There was no debt to be paid. Christ with his, I wish we could understand this, Christ with his pure innocent, holy, unstained, sinless blood poured it out through the suffering of the cross. And that perfect blood is what covers you. No self-interest. No me first and then them. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, ended the need for any further sacrifice perfect holy blood paid it all this is what the text declares powerfully for us the sacrifice of Jesus was a once for all sacrifice Jesus leaves nothing left on the table that needs to be done he is indeed the perfect fit so no other sacrifices needed Christ the perfect one ended the cycle of, of weakness trying to cover the sin of humanity. His perfection ended the endless flow of blood for sin of man. Well, we need to understand this. It's done once and for all. This is what our hearts need to hear. It, it's all gone. It's all taken care of. 
It's all finished. What this means for us is it doesn't just end other priests going to make sacrifices. It doesn't just mean that other priests don't have to go in and kill goats and turtle doves. It also means that your heart can stop trying to make continual sacrifices to cover you because that's what we do with our religion often. It didn't cover it all. I better do this. It didn't cover it all. I better fix this. It didn't cover it all. I bet he's angry. The perfect blood gave the perfect sacrifice. And so the, the words of, of me and Allie back and forth, you don't have to triple confirm you're clean. It's done. The once and for all sacrifice means that you can rest in the forgiveness that is given to you. It doesn't mean cheap grace, do what you want, party, YOLO. That's not what it means. It means the deep parts of your heart. So much shame resides. You can understand that Christ covered that and paid for it. He doesn't see it the way that you do. So you can draw near to God with clean hands, no work left to do, You don't have to prove you're clean. You don't have to prove that you're serious this time. You don't have to prove that you're fixed. You get to draw near knowing Jesus took the full cup of God's wrath, sacrificed once and for all, and this is where the declaration of it is finished. This changes literally everything in your life if you let it go to a deeper level. It's all done. What exactly do you feel like you need right now? Because right, we've got to figure out handles for this, right? What does your heart need? What does it yearn for? Do you need cleansing of your conscience from the guilt and shame? Do you have pictures of the old you and the old mistakes that just will never stop haunting you? Do you have moments at the table or worship or walking in and and the enemy loves us to show you the old self that's dead. Shame just washes over you. The craziest times driving in the car, shame. Jesus fitting for that. Do you need free from the constant loop of your failures? That one that loves to play itself when your head hits the pillow? Do you need a sacrifice to close the gap between you and the Father? So you just don't feel like you have some sort of intimate relationship and you realize down deep it's because you feel like you're unworthy to draw near to him? Do you need a hope that will never disappoint you? Do you need a friend who will never stop supporting you? You run through a gala and just always seem to find disappointment. Do you need the one who will never do that? You need the companion that will never flake out on you. Never eat too brutes to have you in the back. Do you need to feel loved and cherished? Because down deep and when you're alone, you just go, I don't know if anyone loves me. What do you need? Do you need to feel useful, valued, called, cherished? Maybe it's different. You're like, I need free from my anger. 
I need my marriage healed. I, I need to get out of this vocation that's crushing me. What do, you, what do you need? The author is declaring you can have all of that in Christ now. He's fitting. It isn't up in the air. It isn't a possibility. It isn't probability. It's finished. It is secure and you're secure. To be able to exhale and come. Because we, we barter a lot. And I, kinda, I, I did that thing again. I'm going to join a DNA, right? Form of penance. And my my heart's been far. Turn that music up loud and scream it. I'm serious, God. We do all of these things to, to play with the distance between us and a holy father when we can just understand it's already dealt with. You don't have to work so hard to earn what Jesus freely gave you. What we need to slow down enough to realize is all the things that we run to for the things that we need. To, to scratch the itch of the need or the things that we have in our heart, they will always let us down and yet Jesus is there fully able and fully capable to fix it. What do you run to? What's your thing? You run to food? Constantly, when, when things feel bad, you're like, I just got to do something. Alcohol. Intimacy. Fake intimacy. A hobby. Trying to grasp at some sort of notoriety in the world. You just run to social media to drown out your feelings of shame. Let me just laugh at TikTok and then I won't feel like this. You run to anger. Pornography. Maybe gossip and slander is your thing. When I feel so shameful, I'll try and highlight someone else's shame. There are a million things that you can try and use to soothe your soul. And yet Jesus stands there perfectly suited, perfectly fitting to stand in that place and comfort the things that you deeply yearn for. The question then just becomes, in a repetitive way, will you trust him for that or not, though? not just with your sin, with your heart, with your life. Will you go to him for the deep things that you need? Will you draw near? This is what we've been highlighting all over this chapter. Jesus did all of this so you can draw near. He's willing to give it to you. Will you come to him though? Here's the thing that we're gonna kind of probably figure out. We found these statements of, of being fitting to be hollow because we've never actually gone to him. We've just assumed because I called myself a Christian that he would give them. You have to go to him. All who are weary, come to me. Draw near. Well, again, what do we do with this truth? How do we put handles on it? The prayer today is if the Holy Spirit hasn't already kind of begun to kind of show you that you'd ask the Lord in the time of, of prayer and, and while we end, we'll, we'll give a, a gap for that, right? That, like we have been. Ask the Lord to give you clear eyes. I, I, I would venture to say you already know. But if you don't, ask him to give you a clear picture of what you're running to right now. What are the things that you are giving your heart to that Christ is meant to give you? 
if you would be so bold. Ask the Lord, how am I running to lesser things? How am I becoming deceived and try to use imperfect things to deal with what the perfect one already would give me? If he shows you something, confess it. Confess it. Ask for help to change it. Confess it out loud. Confess it to another believer. Ask for prayer over it. What are you doing? Like, oh, that's just too awkward. Do you, do you want to keep doing the thing? Or do you want out? What has continually kind of amazed me, right, if you've been paying attention to these revival and things that are just kind of breaking out in pockets, what seems to be present in every single one? You're like, well, worship, yes. They seem to be fueled by confession and repentance. It's when people go, I don't want that stuff anymore. Forget it. Burn it down. I don't want it. So today in your prayer, confess what you've ran to instead of Jesus with your mouth. Like actually do it and say, I want to return to you with my whole heart. I don't want that stuff anymore. If you're really serious and ask another brother or sister, will you help me keep accountable to this? Like my heart is just, I can't stop running to this stuff. And like I I need help and I need the, the Lord. There's a couple patterns that it's probably time for him just to end. Christ isn't wanting to slam you, berate you, destroy you. He wants to free you. Free you from using lesser things to fulfill the depths of your heart's longings. You guys, putting lesser things in to the core of our soul and expecting happiness when the perfect one's saying, draw near. What our hearts probably need to see is this isn't what immature people do. This isn't what that one person who you're like, yeah, they probably need to do that. This isn't what weak people do. This is what Christians do. This is the process over and over again, realizing Jesus is the perfect fit for your needs and for mine and trusting him over and over again and knowing when you've ran to lesser things, he still receives you back. For some of you who've maybe already been experiencing growth in this area, praise the Lord for it. Don't assume the work's done. Peel the onion back further. And if you're here and you've just kind of never trusted in Jesus for the deep things of your heart, maybe today's the day. You can deal with not only the problem of your sin, but you can deal with the fulfillment of your heart. Turn to the Lord. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I've tried to deal with it, and I've just caused destruction everywhere. Will you save me? I'd be happy to pray with you about that, if, your heart, if your, the Lord is drawing your heart towards that, don't leave, stop ignoring it. Now seems to be the time. Ben, you guys can come back up. Time for that as well. Where God is wanting to pour out a spirit on the church. I told my wife last night as we sat and listened to totally watched the, the women's conference and the David Platt part of it. As we sat there, I said, I've never seen a time when it feels like so largely the Lord is drawing the hearts of his people widely to himself. I, I've never seen this level of, of hunger for the things of the Lord. 
and my heart thought just kind of this morning about the, the story of Jonah. Not the part of him specifically running, but he gets on a boat, right, and he's headed to the wrong place, and the tempest hits the sea, and what do they immediately do? They begin taking stuff, and they throw it overboard. This is going to kill us. And they just begin chucking things. And let your mind understand the depths of what that looks like. These are valuable things, right? It's not like I'm throwing that guy's stuff over. I'm throwing my own stuff. Things that we intended to take to another place and have a payoff and things that we're invested in, things that we've worked years for. Chucking them. Why? They're going to kill me. This seems to be kind of at a heart level what I think the Lord is doing. Cast the stuff off. Throw it overboard. Your sins, your vices, your false idols, your crummy pursuits, your anger, your bitterness, your distance, your accusations of the Lord, throw them over. They're keeping you from the Lord. They're keeping you from the joy and peace in life that he has for you. Casting off Idols and sins, it's one thing to say it. It's terrifying to do it. What does the enemy do when the Lord tries to free you? Slowly put it in your head. You can't live like that. Anxiety. But what you do if you don't have that? Where will you find your meaning? Where will you find your happiness? Just wave after wave after wave. That's where your heart's at. Throw it over anyway. Ask the Holy Spirit to help. The beauty is there's nothing that you will ever throw over or give away that you will regret in time because your heart will find the peace that it longs for and all the things cast aside will be buried at the ocean. Pray that you would do some work in prayer today. Trying to be more bold in these calls to pray. It's time. Don't dance around him. Cast the things off. Find freedom in life. He is fitting. We're going to take communion today. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, for I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and we had given thanks. He broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way also. He took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to play a song, have a gap for some prayer, and the table will be opened after. None of that is possible without the broken body of Jesus. None of the things that you, you're not going to get to any of those things without what that table symbolizes. His body and his blood were broken and shed for you. Praise that you would come and take and hope. And you would see that our good Lord has done such a good thing for you. He's made the path, cleared the path all the way for you to run into his arms.
I pray that in our moments today that you wouldn't zone out. You wouldn't put off or delay. I believe in the core of my heart that the Lord wants to free some of you. It'd be scary for you, but what's the alternative? Do you want to keep running the way that you are or do you want to receive the mercy and grace of God? He's beckoning you and I have something better. Pray in our time together. You would throw whatever you need to off. We'll pray with you if you need to. Grab somebody to pray with you. I'll pray with you afterwards. I think the Lord wants to do some work in you and in me.